This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rise above the sea of sameness and shop the Lincoln Corsair at Woodhouse Lincoln, the Omaha Metro's exclusive Lincoln dealer. The Lincoln Corsair has seating for five and integrated technology features that deliver the functionality you need. With an expressive aesthetic and luxurious interior, the Lincoln Corsair is quiet luxury redefined. Visit us in-store off 144th and Giles Road at Woodhouse Place or online at woodhouselincoln.com. The wait is over. Bridgerton Season 2 has arrived on Netflix, which means we're also back with another season of Bridgerton the Official Podcast. Follow along episode by episode as we revisit memorable moments on and off screen and discover hidden Easter eggs with some of your favorite actors and directors from Season 2. Jack Murphy is teaching Eloise how to dance. And he's going, and a one, and a two. That's Jack? Yeah! Listen to Bridgerton the Official Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Josh and Chuck from Stuff You Should Know, and we wanted to tell you to check out our new episode, What's NATO All About? That's right. We talk about the history of NATO, how NATO is funded, which countries are involved, and why it's more important than ever that you understand what NATO does with the situation with Russia and Ukraine. So if you're like, I've been feeling kind of geopolitical lately, then head on over to the Stuff You Should Know feed and check out What's NATO All About, available now wherever you get podcasts. What's up, everyone? I'm Will Fulton, and this is Thrillist Best Podcast. All right, we're going to start off a little differently today. I'm actually going to pass the podcast baton over to two of the women behind Nashville's Dirty Pages Project, which I'll let them explain. Uh, my name is Erin Byers-Murray, and I am a food writer based here in Nashville. Uh, I'm Cindy Wall, based here in Nashville. I'm a longtime communications professional, and I am an obsessive cook and cookbook reader. Dirty Pages is a storytelling and recipe project. It lives as exhibits uh, with photographs, with uh, imagery of the recipes, of the food, and stories that go with it. The idea came after one of us, Jennifer, found a, a statement on Facebook from a person that none of us really knew. And this, this, it was a picture of a cookbook splayed open, and underneath that, the, one of the comments was, I always tell my daughters that when I go, they should look for the dirtiest pages, um, meaning that those were the recipes that, you know, could bring them back to her, bring them back to another place. So the idea to create this storytelling project uh, you know, sort of evolved into how do we share this? How can we share this with people in public spaces? 
it really was a, a, an evolution from that one strike of inspiration to creating an exhibit. So we were able to capture the stories of one person's dirty page and um, display them in, in great spaces. And it, it helped connect people who love food. One of the things I really have always loved about this project, Dirty Pages, is not just the idea of recipes, but what that one treasured recipe, how it can open the door to a family history, a family mem memory, an immigration story, a story of childhood, a story of relatives, a story of best friends, that basically a dirty page could be the portal to almost everything about a person. I think I did start thinking about dirty pages very literally. Oh, it needed to be that page in a cookbook that had stains in it. It needed to come out of one of those wonderful old recipe boxes that nobody ever really uses that much anymore. And it didn't take very long in this project before that. That notion just was blown apart for me that, that a dirty page doesn't literally have to be dirty. It just has to have those really deep memories. And it's so universal. For example, the first time we were hanging the first exhibit in the National Farmer's Market and people kept stopping and saying, what is that? What are you doing? And we would explain it and they would launch into a story that the minute people sort of get beyond dirty pages, what does that mean? The next thing out of their mouth is a story of a dirty pages they have. One of my favorite stories from the most recent exhibit we did, which, which was launched in 2019, was from a friend of ours who has been a farmer for a long time. Her name is Tally May. Uh, when, when Tally turned 15, she decided to become a vegetarian. And so her mom had to sort of rethink how she was going to cook in her you know, for to feed her daughter and to, to make everyone else in the house happy. And so this recipe, you know, it, it, it's been such a touchstone for Tally because her mother passed away 10 years ago and she still cooks from that page. She still reads her mother's handwriting and it gives her such, you know, a connection to her mom. And she says she can hear her mom's voice in her head when she's cooking that dish. And so I think just that element of how it can bring you right back to the people that, you know, in, in your past and in your, your life, um, that that's a reason to hold on to these things. That's a reason to, to keep them as treasures and to keep cooking from them. I was remembering recently um, my friend Carla, who um, moved to Nashville from Mexico City, I think in the late 90s. But her dirty page was so un unexpected to me. Um, it was the very dirty, a very dirty piece of notebook paper in which she had written down a recipe for apple crisp, which is, you know, a very basic but very easy and delicious dessert. But it's not from Mexico City. And it was uh, one of the first things she learned to cook in Nashville when she was working in a kitchen alongside another woman who's still a pastry chef here. And Rebecca taught Carla how to make this apple crisp. And, and that, was, that was such a sweet surprise to me and, um, and a sweet introduction into, into that idea that sometimes a dirty page comes from where you are in your family, but sometimes it comes at you in the most unexpected way. I think one of the things that surprised me the most as we dove into this is that when you start to talk to an individual about their dirty page story, they suddenly go very deep. They suddenly talk about pain or loss or love or, you know, 
just emotional you know struggles or uh, or deep joy you know that they will open up to you in a way that it's you know food food is that conduit you know and those pages are the conduit that's allow people to open up and really share who they are and who and where they come from and I think when you share those recipes and then you share a meal together at the table it's uh, you know you're 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 acting the same way that people did generations before us. And so we don't want to let that go. We, we want that to remain an important part of, of our community and, um, and us as cooks. In its biggest sense, Dirty Pages are the recipes you remember the most, the recipes that remind you of your favorite times, the recipes that remind you of something amazing that happened in your life, of someone amazing in your life. And gosh, particularly in this time of quarantine and pandemic, where we are all feeling it. Um, you know, it's about it's about really getting at preserving the heart of, of, of humanity. I know that sounds ridiculous, but meals have meanings. That's why we miss gathering with people, eating together. And and these recipes remind us of that. And um it's 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 that simple recipe that that brings about that flood of of memories and that flood of a different time. So right now I'm in my kitchen digging through my own family's dirty pages, which <laughs> sounds weird, uh, but you know you know the context now after that previous segment. But I'm looking at my grandma's handwritten recipes. There's orange cream cake on what looks like a Fourth of July postcard. There's pineapple cake on an old cocktail napkin recipe for pit cells on what looks like a piece of cardboard. These are all stained with ingredients that I guess missed the bowl or thumbprints covered in chocolate. But her handwriting is perfect cursive with all those loops and flourishes they taught you in grade school. Do they still teach cursive? I have no idea. But anyway, these recipes are more than just a dose of nostalgia for me. They're more than something to remember my grandmother by. I feel like these are truly a link to our past and help us understand our own family histories a little bit better. So I'm about to talk to Chef Aaron Sanchez. If you follow food at all, you definitely know his name from MasterChef or his many restaurants and cookbooks. But did you know his mother and grandmother were both chefs and cookbook authors? They taught him how to cook, so he definitely has an interesting outlook on family recipes and passing these things on. Uh, Let's drop right into our call. Yeah, well, you know, I'm actually an anomaly in the sense that I'm a third generation cookbook author uh, and cook, you know, so my grandmother wrote a book on Mexican family cooking in 86. Um, My mom continued the legacy with three of her own books. And then I just came out with my memoir and two other cookbooks. So, yeah, it's definitely in the blood, Uh, you know, like like most Mexican American families, you know, the, the women are the matriarchs and they, they, they run, they run the household and a lot of the, in the cooking sort of generates from there. Uh, and then, you know, you couple that with the fact that my mom is a chef and opened her own restaurant in 87. So I, I grew up in the business very much. So almost denying, denying that pool that, that was taking me into the restaurant business, but, uh, it was undeniable. Uh, I had a really good head for it. Uh, I understood how to put together flavors understood its cult- cultural relevance. Uh, and then I just started studying and training and learning as much as I could. And I got bit by the bug. So it started 
in my in my early teens. Yeah, you know, this is kind of a weird question, but do you you know, considering your own your own background and your own the pedigree you come from, do you think that cooking and being good at cooking is a hereditary trait? Do you think that's something that's passed even in like your DNA that you just know how to cook? I believe so. I mean, when you think about when you think about athletes who have kids that are that play pro sports, you know, and you have, you know, that's definitely something that's in the blood that's passed down that talent to be able to uh, excel at, at sports. I think the same thing applies for cooking. Um, I think when you're exposed to it at a very young age, like I was, it, 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 it allows you to have such a deeper appreciation for how it's, how it's prepared, how it's making people feel as far as get, bringing them joy. And basically what you're doing is putting other people's needs before yours, mm. you know? And I think that's, what's really important. I feel like, there are a lot of different ways to learn how to cook. Um, what do you think the advantages are mm-hmm. or even just the overall positives of learning to cook through family members, through family recipes, even from like a technical standpoint? Well, you learn a lot of little tricks, you know, you know, one of the things that I think everybody can really relate to is, you know, like everyone agrees that grandma's cooking is probably the best cooking, right? You sure. take a consensus of a hundred people, you're going to get 90 people at least to say grandma's cooking is the best. Right. And a big reason because of that is an understanding of ingredients and experience, but also is that the patience and the nurturing aspect that comes with cooking. Have you ever seen your grandmother move fast? Hell no. <laughs> so those perfect, those, those enchiladas and all those classic Mexican dishes have all day to sort of uh, meld with their flavor and develop and that's why I think those techniques that you learn from family members are stuff that you learn in professional kitchens, per se. You learn classic technique in, kitchen, in professional kitchens, but the grandmas and the moms have all these little tricks that they've learned through years of doing it. You know, I've heard from a lot of people uh, talking about oral recipes that are passed down from generation to generation, mm-hmm. never written down. Um, and it almost becomes like a game of telephone, right, where each new family member, each new generation add something new or makes a small tweak. Is that what it was like in your family? Or do you have a tendency to write recipes down and, and pass them down? Uh, you know, for me, uh, it was more just visual to be very honest. You know, yeah. I remember going to my grandmother's house in El Paso, Texas. And she, she was always had something on the stove, always had something going. And she was very adamant about calling her ahead of time because she <laughs> wanted to put on her makeup and put a nice gown on and the whole thing. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, uh, I remember just watching and having those, those kind of mental snapshots. Uh, and then I just applied that to, to my own cooking and it's been very helpful. You know, I'm lucky, I guess, cause both my mom and my grandmother have books that I can reference. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Which a lot of people, which a lot of people don't have that, but I, I encourage everyone that's gonna, that's listening to us to please you know, engage your grandparents or, or, or elders in your family and extract those recipes from them before it's too late. You'll be kicking yourself in the cookies if that happens, you know? Yeah, it's it's funny. You know, my grandmother has a cookbook too, but like a handwritten one that she has on her shelf. It's, much, it's a little mm-hmm. different for you. You can walk into a bookstore and actually buy yeah. your grandma and your mom's cookbook. Uh, so. <laughs> but, you know, like to that point, yeah. to that point, it's, it's kind of a... Uh, point of contention in my family because my grandma's cookbook that she wrote 
a, a lot of us think that she left a few things out of her recipes. You know, she she passed away, uh, you know, about a decade ago now, but we still use her recipes, mm-hmm. right? But they're, you know, they always taste a little off, like something is missing. And we're wondering if she did that on purpose. <laughs> right? What do you think about that? Do you think that's something that you see? Yeah, I don't, I don't. Hey, man, they're her recipes. She could do whatever she wants with them. You know what I mean? But uh, part of them, part of it, too, I think is you're, you're just caught up in the nostalgia of her cooking. Yeah. And things always are, you know, let me just tell you, it's like the same thing with me. I have, I have some of the best chefs anywhere in the country working with me. I have great cooks, very talented team. But if I come in the restaurant and people see me there, they're going to swear it tastes better when I'm there. Or you know what I mean? They're going to think it's phenomenal, even though our team does it all the time when I'm not there. You know what I'm saying? There's just that pers- that, that perspective of, oh, you know, the, 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 the big person's here, so it's going to be tasting better. You know what I mean? I do, yeah. I mean, you know, I think, like, her yeah. her beef stew that she made when I was, you know, seven years old coming out, you know, in from a snowstorm is never going to taste as good as when I try to make it, even if I make it exactly yeah. the same, right? Yeah, exactly. Just, there's just something about that connection, you know, that's, that's undeniable. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in, in your own cookbooks and, and even in your restaurants, do you try to implement family recipes or family techniques into your menus? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, it's very common for me to say, look, my, for instance, right now, we have uh, we have a uh, what our most popular taco or, or meatball tacos that are my grandmother's albondigas or meatball recipe. So that has, that hasn't left the menu since we put it on, and that's a perfect example. You know, it's a beautiful meatball. You know that we top with beautiful cacique ranchero queso fresco. We, you know, we have a little garnish, fresh tortillas. That's one of the things that really people say, wow, I can taste your grandmother's story in this dish. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's amazing. Are there are there logistical problems with trying to uh, adapt these family recipes to a larger scale, like at a restaurant? Not really. If you can just, you know, you, it's never, it's never going to taste exactly 100% uh-huh. like your grandma's, but it can be, it can be definitely inspired by that. And we do that all the time because um, we know how to, you know, batch in bulk and, and cook in quantities, you know, uh, things are going to be changed slightly, you know, obviously from a flavor profile, but we do our best. Uh, people just love it, you know, and they trust that I'm, I'm capturing my grandmother's spirit in my food. Yeah, of course, which you are obviously uniquely qualified to do. Um, and on that note, you know, you talk about your your, your, <laughs> your grandma's story, your grandma's soul. Um, when you are at home, and maybe like even a time like right now, in, in a time where things are a little chaotic, a little scary, do you find yourself turning to family recipes as a source of comfort? Yeah, absolutely. I always, you know, when I check in with my mom, Inevitably, the first thing we start talking about is what 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 what, what have you made lately? Or you know what's what have you cooked? What what ingredients have you seen at the market that you that really call attention to you? You know things like that. Right. So that's inevitably the first one of the conversations we have initially. You know. So yeah, I find myself gravitating to those recipes a lot. Uh, there's one recipe in particular um, 
that, that my grandmother, that my mom makes for me is a sopa seca, which is a very sort of warming kind of risotto pasta-like dish that you can make with orzo or make it with like little alphabet pasta with a roasted tomato broth and, and tons of, of potija cheese. Uh, and it's one of my favorite comforting dishes. And I, and I, I gravitate towards that dish quite often. And does it remind you of, you know, either growing up or, or your grandma or, and your mother? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I would, I would uh, beg my mom often when I was an adult and I was, I was living in some other city, I would come home to visit and I would ask her to make me sopa seca. Yeah. And she'd go, oh, I haven't made that, di- I haven't made that dish since the last time I saw you. <laughs> I would always ask for it. That's like, uh, have you ever seen Ratatouille, the Pixar movie? Yeah, of course, of course, of course. Of course. It is like that Ratatouille scene Ratatouille with the, the critic. Fact. Yeah, and it takes him back to his own childhood. Yeah. I love that movie. Totally. Sorry. I just wanted totally. to mention it. I try to I bring it up it as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, dude, like, you know, my son, my son is nine years old, and, you know, there, that was the movie we would watch over and over. That that in the little minions, but I still try to. He's older now. He's like, Dad, I don't want to watch Ratatouille. That's for little kids. I'm like, No, dude, it's awesome. Yeah, Aaron, do you remember some of the first things that you made with uh, either your mother or your grandmother? Yeah, you know, it started very early on. You know, um, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in authentic high quality ingredients and family. And that's exactly why I partnered with Cacique, uh, which is one of the largest uh, Mexican food brands in the USA. They've been around for, for 40 plus years. I started using their products very early on uh, at my house. And it was, you know, it was the chorizo. It was the crema mexicana. Uh, and one of my favorite ingredients that I'm using a lot right now uh, is Cacique's Ranchero Queso Fresco. Uh, Queso Fresco is the number one used cheese in Mexico. Uh, and I've been using those in, in a lot of my recipes. Yeah. And I remember making tacos, dorado, tacos dorados, which are crispy little tacos, when I was very young that had like, you know, a chorizo and, and, and queso fresco filling. And another one, another version would have potatoes and queso fresco. And then you top those with all these yummy, uh, you know, shaved radishes and lettuce and crema mexicana and more queso fresco. And so those are some of the early food memories I have uh, is working with those great ingredients. Yeah, that's amazing. And how, how old were you when you were making these things? It seems, you know, not easy to make, right? No, uh, you, you know, I can remember six years old, wow. five, six years old. You know, my mom, my mom used to cater to make money on the side. And I remember all of us helping out making cookies and, and making these tacos dorados. And, you know, the, I, I remember all of that very, at a very young age. Wow, that, that's awesome. Um, I wish I would have done that. I'd be a lot. I'd be a lot better cook today. <laughs> my my parents tried, but you know, <laughs> I didn't listen. So you know, <laughs> that's all good. <laughs> yeah, there's always time to learn. Aaron, this was awesome, and I really appreciate you know someone with your perspective coming on and talking about this stuff, and also uh, laying down some advice. Uh, it really means a lot. So I appreciate you taking time out uh, to talk with us. Absolutely, and uh, I hope all the best. I hope you stay safe. Cook a lot more. And if you ever need anything, you just reach out to me, okay? Well, thanks for having me on. Will do, Aaron. Thanks, man. Have a good day. 
You too. All right, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Stick around. If you can plan barbecues and weddings, you can plan to protect yourself from a natural disaster. Sign up for local alerts, prepare an emergency kit, and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov slash plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Get ready to laugh and learn. I am Flame Monroe. I am He, She, We. He cash the check, she make the money, we spend it. And along with my co-host, Lauren Hogan, Laugh and Learn is a weekly podcast bringing you the latest headlines, keeping you informed, inspired, and entertained. You never know what you're going to hear, especially with my mouth. Listen and subscribe on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Alec Baldwin. On this season of Here's the Thing, I speak with more actors, musicians, writers, policymakers, and so many other fascinating people, like comedian Tim Dillon. I couldn't tell you my congressman. I know every maitre d' of every restaurant. <laughs> I know who's working Craig's. I know who's working, you know, all the places I want to go. Who's at El Pasteo? When I'm in town, you come with me. We're going to go to Craig's. Host of The Talk, Amanda Klutz. I did Broadway for 17 years. When you do that, it kind of prepares you for anything in life. And the multi-talented musician and actor, Stephen Van Zandt. When it comes to performing, that's just like a vacation for me. You know, whether it's acting or whether it's being a rock star on stage, you know, that stuff is just nothing but fun for me. The real work is looking at a blank piece of paper and creating something from it, you know. Listen to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, while Aaron might have learned to cook from his family, Rosella Rago has made a career by cooking with her family, specifically her Nona. She's the host of Cooking with Nona on YouTube with her absolutely lovely grandmother, and she's released several cookbooks with recipes from different Nonas, including her own. So needless to say, she definitely has a unique perspective on all of this. Here's our conversation. So, Rosella, Cooking with Nana is a project. Am I saying? Am I, I'm not Italian at all. I'm, no, I'm very well, oh, you got to say Nonna. Nonna. Okay. I'm glad we got that out of the way. Nonna. Bravo. Nonna. Yeah, much better. Okay. Uh, so, Cooking with Nona is a project, a YouTube channel, and a series of cookbooks that features recipes passed down from generation to generation uh, in your family and also heavily features your own Nona, which uh, teaching you, helping you cook, which is awesome. It, it's It's... I love watching it, but what inspired you to bring this into the world? Um, so it's it's a really interesting kind of long story when I think about it because, um, I mean, it's been 10 years now uh, that I've had Cooking with Nona that we launched our website. We, we launched in um, June of 2009. So when I look back, it kind of feels like an entire lifetime ago. <laughs> you know, usually... YouTube creators are just like these kids with like camera phones in their room. And now everybody's making TikTok videos and your parents don't even know what the hell you're doing. But my family was very heavily involved from the very beginning. So um, I grew up a a first generation Italian American in Brooklyn, New York. I don't know if you can hear that. A little bit. I don't know if it shows. A little bit. I'm in Brooklyn right now, so I get it. 
Yeah, but you live in cool Brooklyn, all right? Let's get one thing straight. There's do two I? different Brooklyns, you and you know. definitely live in a different Brooklyn than I live you in. You don't know where I live. Where uh, do you live? I live in Prospect Heights. Yeah, you're in cool Brooklyn. Okay. All right? <laughs> all right. I'll give you that one. I'm in, I grew up in Bensonhurst. Have you ever been to Bensonhurst? Uh, no, but I've seen it on a map. Yeah. See? Okay. We have good pizza. <laughs> yeah. And and that's and that's it. But like, I don't live in the in the trendy hip Brooklyn. I never did. I live in Bay Ridge now, actually. I've been there, uh, which is made famous. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Bay Ridge a little bit. We had Saturday Night Fever. We have more things. But like Bensonhurst was really kind of like the bounce of Brooklyn. But when I was growing up, I didn't even know I was in America. Yeah. I, I for all intents and purposes, I lived in Italy. I I didn't speak English until I was five. Um, I, everybody I knew was from the same village that my family was from. So it was just, uh, I grew up in this microcosm of Italian America and, um, cooking was just a part of our lives. Like I didn't, I, I very much took it for granted until I got older and, um, I was studying at St. John's university to become an Italian teacher. Cause when you're a nice Italian girl from Bensonhurst. And you don't know what the hell to do with your life. You're like, okay, I'll just become an Italian teacher and somebody will marry me and it'll be great. And um, when I was a sophomore, my father came to visit me because I wasn't allowed to dorm because nice Italian girls also do not dorm. Of course. So I had to live with Nona. I was I was like sharing a bedroom with Nona. And he was like, you know. Maybe you should pick something else because we all know you're going to be a really terrible teacher. <laughs> That's exactly what he said to me. So I, I thought about it for like three seconds and I just blurted out, I'm going to host a cooking show one day. And uh, my father was like, oh, that's great. We should do a show about Nonna and her recipes. There are no shows about that. So we just like both laughed about it. And a week later, he bought the web domain cookingwithnona.com. And I was like, that's really funny. What are we going to do with that? Like now everybody owns like a web domain. Back then it was like, oh, I bought a website. I was going to say, that's a good snag. You got in on that early. That's a good, uh, that's a good domain. So when, when all this started, what was Nona's take? Was she into it? Was she a little skeptical? Did she just, was she just excited to, you know, spend more time with you? My Nona has no concept of who she is still, even today. She has no concept of like how the impact that I think she's had right. on, you know, the 700,000 people that like cooking with no, no on Facebook that, uh, you know, the thousands of people that have read the books with her on the cover. I think she really thinks this is all a big joke. I mean, <laughs> Italian, uh, grandparents of her generation, like part of her is like, Oh, you're going to put me in prison one day. <laughs> like she still thinks like, don't tell people that I live in a basement with a kitchen. It's illegal. <laughs> don't, they're going to come and shut us down. Like she's still very much of that school, like to be quiet and to not be out there. Now she's a little bit more comfortable and she'll call me and she'll say, Rasta, I, I, I remembered this recipe. You got to make the movie about it. <laughs> so it, she. She gets it, but she doesn't. You know, when I tell her, you know, this is the most searched recipe on the website, like your chicken and potatoes. And she's like, eh, what are people stupid? You know, she, she always said I was her best friend. Like I was the love of her life and she, and she would do anything to help me. So from that perspective, I could tell her we're going to go, you know, to a war torn country and teach people how to make pasta. And she would say, okay. But, um, 
if it if it ended tomorrow, I think she would she would be fine with it. That's amazing. That that's a good way to live life, you know. Not not wholly invested in your persona, but just uh, accepting it for what it is. Well, the thing about all of these women that I cook with, because through throughout the books, I mean, the books contain recipes and stories, the life stories of thirty different nomnet collectively. Yeah. So I think what's the most amazing thing about them is that before I started cooking with Nona, they really, they didn't, when I would approach them, they were like, me, what the hell do I have to offer? You know, they don't, they don't view themselves as, you know, the heroines of the culinary world. And when I think about the Nona figure and how important she is in an Italian American family, you know, she really is the foundation. And, you know, your Nona is, uh, is a source of love and affection that maybe your parents are too busy to give you, you know, your nonna loves you in a very different way than your parents do growing up. You know, they give you the, your first pastina and they nurture you differently. And I just always wanted to highlight this very special relationship because I think it really made me who I am. Definitely. And on that note, uh, from what I understand, you did learn to cook from a very early age uh, under the guidance of, of your nonna and, and your mother too. Is that correct? Yeah, so now my mom is actually a part of the show. We brought her in. But um, it, it was, it's really interesting to see the three of us together because I did always know how to cook. My mother cooked every single day, but my mother cooked out of necessity. Mm-hmm. My grandmother cooked because she is an expert in cooking. My grandmother is the, is the oldest of seven children, so she was the designated cook in the household. My great-grandmother you know, lost her husband very young. And, you know, she ran a business. So Mm -hmm. my grandmother was in charge of cooking. Her younger sister was in charge of cleaning. And it was like a team. There was delegation of responsibilities. So I always say, you know, how Malcolm Gladwell says, if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, practicing something, you're an expert. So that was just cooking is the thing my grandmother has spent the most time on in her life. So she's incredibly good at it. She's very skilled. She's very precise, and it. it but it, it's an expertise that she did not regard as as an expertise. She she just thought that this was what she had to do. Rosella, with with your own family recipes, when you learned, was it something that you know a lot of them are written down now or on YouTube, so you can access them. But when you learned from your Nona, was anything written down? Was it more like here? I'm going to show you how to make this, and then you do what I do. What was that learning process like? Oh my God. So my process for kind of decoding a recipe from any Nona, um, if they have them written down, I have one Nona that actually um, went back to school in her, in her forties and became like valedictorian of the college that she attended. And she's very precise and she writes everything down and everything is perfect. And I can take one of her recipes and make it and trust that everything is fine. Some of them, um, think it's like hieroglyphics. Like if they wrote it down, it's 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 like measured in espresso cups or some other kind. They're all their units of measure are very interesting. So they they almost each lady has her own language. I mean, and I almost never take something that they that they show me that they give me written down and trust it. I have to make it with them. So after doing this for so many years, I can look at, you know, a handful that they throw in and know what that is. Or um, I can just, 
I could just get a, a sense of, of what they're going to do. And then you turn around and they do something without you looking. And then you're like, oh, my God, what did you do? And um, the, the secret to this is just testing. Um, test it again. I test my recipes over and over and over for this reason. Because sometimes there's just, sometimes they leave stuff out, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. No, it's true. And sometimes, it's true. Yeah. They, no, they do. I've had a couple. And then sometimes there are those those uh, outlier recipes that I do firmly believe. Like I had this one cake from a, a 93-year-old lady in Queens wanted to teach me to make her chiffon cake. She never gave the recipe, the recipe to anybody else. I swear I did that cake exactly the way she did it. We did it together once. I was not able to replicate that cake. That cake only comes out good in her basement in Queens. I am convinced. What are we missing there? Because you're so right. Like, you know, my my grandmother, who is no longer with us, uh, she has all of these recipes and she she wrote all of them down. But it's it's a it's it's a disagreement in our family because some people think that she left out you know, a one ingredient on purpose. So it would never be as good as we remember. And other people just think, you know, she just knew what to do by practice. <laughs> she just didn't feel like she needed to write things down. She just, oh, I know to toss in, you know, this brown sugar whenever, but she just wouldn't write it down. Why do you think, you know, you're talking about this basement in Queens, like and it only tastes good coming out of there. What's what's going on there? Why does this happen? You know, I'm not the friggin' Wizard of Oz here. I don't know everything, <laughs> but... Uh, I need some help. I, I can... I can say that this speaks to, you know, the an inherent relationship with food. I always tell people, I can give you a recipe. I can give you numbers and quantities. But, you know, if you don't know what the pasta is supposed to feel like, you're never going to make good pasta. Mm -hmm. You have to develop a relationship with the things that you cook. So when you're looking at a sauce, you know what it needs. You know how much heat it needs. You know how much time it needs to reduce. You'll just know. You know, there, there are things that I, I think you can't, you can't just rely on a written recipe for. You have to make things over and over and over and see and just see it and see it and feel it. You know, it, it really is something that you have, to, you have to find within yourself, the passion for cooking. Because if you don't have that kind of passion, you're never going to like doing it. And, and the things that you make are never going to come out the way that you think. And I always tell people that if it doesn't taste exactly like your nonas, it's okay because it's kind of not supposed to. I'm mm. sure she said the same thing about something her nona made. And one day your kids are going to say, say the same thing about, you know, the recipe, the way you make it. Every generation puts their own twist on something, puts their own flavor into something. Things evolve. Yeah, and do you think that's one of the beauties and joys of these recipes that are passed down sometimes hundreds of years through generation to generation that each link adds something of their own and it kind of becomes this game of telephone where this recipe is always changing and always evolving with time and people yeah i mean i think that's beautiful and i think i have a, a very unique perspective on that because i am an italian american and um in italy they kind of have this this tunnel vision about what Italian food is supposed to be. And since I'm the product of, of an immigrant, uh, of immigrant parents, like I have a totally different point of view because I, I look at it as, as an evolution of, uh, of, of a 
food of my ancestors in a different country. You know, when people walk around and say and, and think that there should be completely authentic Italian food in America, and I'm like, why would you think that? You should go back to Italy if you want to eat truly authentic Italian food. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, every generation and every landscape is going to put a different spin on things. Um, I like to see changes. I like to see what somebody does with a recipe. I never would tell people, you know, you have to make this only this way. If it makes you happy to, to put something else in or to try it, it, to try it a different way, do it. You know, this is your, this is your, you know, relationship with food that you have to build. I can give you a roadmap, but I'm not going to tell you where to go. And do you think that that is a better or more effective way to learn instead of relying on written down recipes, cookbooks, tutorials, whatever, is actually getting in with someone and just practicing and just seeing what they do and just, you know, having that information transfer organically? Uh, Absolutely. I think it helps to have, you know, to have things written down. I think it helps to have a skeleton of something. Um, and especially if you're just starting out and people buy cookbooks for all different reasons, they buy them because they just like them. They like to, they like to look at pictures or they like to leaf through it, or they just like having, it's a comforting feeling to know that you have everything in one place and you can always reference something. But at the same time, I always tell people, you know, you don't need my permission. You can change whatever you want. Um, and, and people have different views on things. I think there's, you know, Italian Americans and Italian people will never be fully united on a, on a, on one culinary perspective because there's just too much stuff. If you look at one town in Italy, you know, I'll show you one town in Italy and I'll show you 30 different ways to make pasta fagioli. You know, how can you unite? How can you unite a people that can't even agree on one meatball recipe? <laughs> there's just too much stuff. You know, there's just too much stuff. We're not the French where we have these hard, fast rules on what to do and how to do it. Um, Italian cooking is so much more rustic. So there is so much room for interpretation. And right. I think that's the beauty of our cuisine is that there is no one way. And it leaves room for a lot of fantasy and it leaves room for a lot of... Um, a lot of creativity. Well, Rosella, this is awesome. Um, I, you know, I love watching your show, and I'm so glad you came on to uh, school me a little bit on this cooking stuff, which I'm still trying to get the hang of, even though I love food, and every little bit helps, and I think you helped me today, for sure. Oh, you're so well. Thank you for having me on, and if you have any questions, you know where to find me. I'm in Not Cool Brooklyn. If it was <laughs> a different time, I would invite you over. I would teach you things. I would cook, I, you know. I'm one of those people, like, even if I didn't like you, I'd have to feed you. Well, I hope you like me. And one day we will, we no, no, will you're do wonderful. that. We will do that one day. Yeah. Okay. Sounds awesome. good. Well, thanks so much again. <laughs> All right. We're going to take another very quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back. Rise above the sea of sameness and shop the Lincoln Corsair at Woodhouse Lincoln, the Omaha Metro's exclusive Lincoln dealer. The Lincoln Corsair has seating for five and integrated technology features that deliver the functionality you need. With an expressive aesthetic and luxurious interior, the Lincoln Corsair is quiet luxury redefined. Visit us in-store off 144th and Giles Road at Woodhouse Place or online at woodhouselincoln.com. 
You care for the house, the kids, and our future. A Shiro's day is never done. So let's start saving a little more now. Get free tips to help boost your retirement savings. Visit aceyourretirement.org. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Get ready to laugh and learn. I am Flame Road. I am He, She, We. He cash the check, she make the money, we spend it. And along with my co-host, Lauren Hogan, Laugh and Learn is a weekly podcast bringing you the latest headlines, keeping you informed, inspired, and entertained. You never know what you're going to hear, especially with my mouth. Listen and subscribe on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So courageous, and by the way, that's the word courageous with the word curry in it. It's a pun. It's funny. It's a new project run by Kanal Patel, Ria Bomek, and Kush Parmar. They describe it as a meditative look at the recipes we're going to lose. So in each episode, they learn an oral recipe, usually from an older family member, and hear the story behind it. They're dedicated to making sure these recipes and these stories are preserved. Here are their thoughts. My name is Kunal Patel. I like to think of Courageous as a meditative look at the recipes that we're going to lose. Um, in, you know, in, I speak because I'm, I'm Indian. So in, in my culture, we have, you know, it, this is probably prevalent in a lot of cultures, but we just have people like our parents, elders who know recipes and they just like throw things into a pot and they never explain what it is. And it comes out amazing, but we just d- never know what they're making. And I think... Um, you know, we don't have the time to cook nowadays. So that in part with them not writing anything down just makes it that I think we're going to lose a lot of the recipes. I feel the importance of, of, uh, saving these recipes is that, you know, it's not so much the recipes. And this is something interesting that we found as we were recording these and creating these, it's the stories that go along with the recipes. Um, we end up finding things out about the subjects that even though we've known them for decades uh we don't we never knew you know about how they learned how to cook this particular dish and um you know the story that was involved in that and i think that you know with with cultures meshing so much around the world sometimes you'll you know you'll forget what came before you know and it's kind of important to me to understand the food that i've been eating since i was young um, and figure out how I can maybe make that for my kids, you know, when, when I go forward. Um, if I may. Um, so I think for me, the importance of uh, keeping these recipes alive, um, specifically, I'm going to get particular with the first episode that we did. It was actually my dad. And my dad and I didn't actually have a great relationship when we started off, but he was the cook in our family. Um, ironically enough, I actually learned how to cook completely by myself because we just had a pretty, you know, intense relationship. Like he just wouldn't really cook for us. He would just cook his things. But then I grew up and I started learning a lot more about him and his past um, and finding out who he really was because we look at our parents and we're like, they're just our parents. Um, We forget that they had a whole history before we were born. And so when we were recording the episode for the first one, um, we just kind of expected to get the recipe out of him. And instead, I got really emotional when I was composing the music because I was just learning about the fact that his mom died when he was like 17. He had to like up his uproot his entire life, figure his shit out immediately. And he started cooking because he had to eat. Right. And it became a passion. And he actually is um, a cook for his as a living now. 
And while I was listening to that, I was like, how have I spent 30 years of my life not knowing that his mom passed away when he was 17 years old? And so we got these amazing stories and we never get to hear about our ancestors, like our grandparents or our great grandparents. I mean, in our culture, we barely even know their names um, because most of our parents immigrated out of Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, and they came here and they just had to like clean slate, start over. And we kind of, we're born here. I mean, most of us are born here. We like really take that for granted. And listening to that story was kind of incredible. And just at this age, I mean, I'm sad to say that I'm, I'm almost 30 and now I'm kind of curious about it. But when you're younger, like you're just trying to fit in with everybody else. You don't really care about like the foods of your culture, you know? Yeah. And to add like, um, sometimes we don't know enough about our culture, right? And then we see other people kind of knowing more. And I think part of us kind of felt like, oh, we should really dig into our own culture and like our own food and stuff like that. We already kind of do that, but we kind of wanted to attack it a little bit more because we realized that um, people outside of Southeast Asia and, you know, Middle Eastern people were kind of telling our stories. So part of it was that we wanted to tell our own stories the way kind of we wanted to hear it. I hope that Courageous inspires people to just realize that there are stories they can tell out there. Um, I think within our, you know, a lot of what I do is colored by the fact that I'm Indian, right? And I, and I think I said that earlier. And so a, a lot of what I hope Courageous inspires is not so much getting the food down, because by the end of it, sometimes the recipe isn't exactly clear. And, and we've always said that, you know, the stories a lot more important than that recipe, but we are, you know, desperately trying to get the recipes out of them. Um, but I do think that it's important that we are able to tell our stories, you know, and that we believe that we can, like even that, just believing that you can tell a story. Like in our culture, when you go into anything related to arts, entertainment, media, you're kind of like an outcast. It's, it's changing nowadays, but for the most part, it kind of isn't, you know, and that's why you don't see too many brown people in media, entertainment, arts, that sort of thing. And so it kind of gets it kind of you have to be really strong in order to survive that until you're out from under your parents, you know, because you're kind of just like that gets like beaten into you. Like, no, you're going to be a doctor, engineer, lawyer. That's that's it. That's all you're going to be. All these other fancy ideas you have in, you know, in fancy in quotes, don't that's just a hobby. That's not anything. So half half the things that I want Courageous to inspire is that you can literally pick up a camera, you can find something interesting, and you can just put it all together. And eventually you might even be able to like talk to somebody, you know, like you at Thrillist, which is, you know, it's such a cool opportunity for us. It's not something we ever envisioned would happen. Um, but that that's, you know, it, it's so important to be able to show people that these stories are important. And just the fact that you can do this is important. Absolutely. Um, I think it is extremely important for Courageous to be seen um, by a large audience of people because growing up, we didn't see people like us doing things like this. These are homegrown stories. These are not celebrities. These are not like famous chefs. These are people that we know. These are our uncles, our dads, our grandparents, our grandmothers, our moms, our aunts. These are people that we've literally seen growing up. And we never imagined for them to have this moment. All right, well, I attempted my grandmother's orange cream cake. That was the one on the back of the 4th of July postcard, if you remember from the intro. And it came out very, very badly. Uh, 
I guess it'll never be as good as I remember it. I don't know if I'm capable of cooking as well as my grandma, but I'm trying at least. And I encourage all of you at home to go into your family recipes too, to find those dirty pages and try yourself. You might just learn something about cooking and about your family too. All right, I want to thank all of our guests for coming on. Also want to thank Mia Fask, Megan Kirsch, Jim D'Amico, Brett Kushner, Emily Feld, and Mangesh Hadakudor from iHeartRadio. Want to thank Dan Byrne for editing and mixing this episode, listening to my voice way, way, way too much per usual. And find those dirty pages, people. Hope to see you next week. Later. Rise above the sea of sameness and shop the Lincoln Corsair at Woodhouse Lincoln, the Omaha Metro's exclusive Lincoln dealer. The Lincoln Corsair has seating for five and integrated technology features that deliver the functionality you need. With an expressive aesthetic and luxurious interior, the Lincoln Corsair is quiet luxury redefined. Visit us in-store off 144th and Giles Road at Woodhouse Place or online at woodhouselincoln.com. Hi, I'm Elliot Kalin, comedian, author, history buff, and host of the Who Was Podcast, a history quiz show based on the best-selling Penguin book series, where kid contestants go toe-to-toe for a chance to win fantastic prizes. From Alexander the Great to Aretha Franklin, we ask only important history questions like, would Genghis Khan shop at Hot Topic? And did Frida Kahlo like soup? Buckle up your brain. Listen to the Who Was Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chelsea Clinton, and I'm so excited to be back with a new season of my podcast, In Fact. We're marking Women's History Month with 12 trailblazing women in sports, media, politics, and more, talking about the progress we've made or lost and how far we still need to go. From soccer star Megan Rapino to White House correspondent April Ryan to fashion designer Stella McCartney, these women have risen to the top of their fields and are fighting for equal opportunities for everyone. So I hope you'll join us and listen to In Fact with me, Chelsea Clinton, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.